If we haven't met yet, I'm Amber. Welcome back to session five of our Hebrews study. We have made it halfway through our time together in the study of Hebrews. Before we really dive in, let's invite the Holy Spirit in our time, in this time that we have together. In Ephesians, Paul lays out one of my most favorite prayers. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to guide our time today, to teach our hearts and minds that what we need Lord, I just pray that you would take away any distractions in this place and in the place of the women's hearts. Lord, it is in your son's name who sits at your right hand that we ask these things. Amen. Shadow. A shadow is a dark area or shape produced by a body coming in between rays of light and a surface. We can form a basic idea of what a shadow is trying to reveal, but we don't really know the full reality, the details of what that shadow is until we come up to it face to face. Colossians 2.17, these, Paul is speaking of the rituals, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. With this idea in mind, let's get started. For this session, we are in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This section of the book is known as a chiasmus, which in ancient literature is a tool providing rhetorical effect, which in simpler terms means it's adding emphasis or writing persuasively. As we discussed in session one, the author was a master of the Greek language and well-versed in literary knowledge to be able to write in such a manner. So we're gonna start with a little bit of a background. How can we appreciate this provision of Jesus as the best, the greatest high priest? I mean, really, what does that mean for you and me in this time in modern history? In the Old Covenant, the position of high priest was predominant. It was designed in order for humanity to understand their need for a representative, a mediator, or an intercessor which is a person who intervenes on the behalf of another. In Leviticus 16, we see the Lord prescribes how and for what reason the high priest is to enter into the most holy place, which is the place where God said he would appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. The eldest of Aaron's four sons had died because they came near to the Lord with an unauthorized strange fire and they died before the Lord. The offense is, the, is that the two sons did it their own way, not the way the Lord had authorized. God spoke directly to Aaron after his son's deaths. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses eight through 11. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. God is establishing the roles of the priesthood, which were to distinguish between the holy and common, or in other words, the good and the bad, to separate the clean from the unclean. And this is referring to actually cleanliness of the body all the way to our uncleanliness of our sinful ways, to teach the people the laws of God and to make atonement or to remove sin, which was and still is today, the obstacle preventing us from being reconciled with God. The priest would make atonement for the sins of himself and for the people of Israel. They were crucial for Israel to be able to live faithfully to the covenant that God had established with his people. 
This is an important distinction for us to remember throughout our time today. God established and designed the priesthood, which we often refer to as the Old Covenant. The priesthood was hereditary and it was for life. While the high priest shared some duties with other priests, it was only the high priest that could enter into the most holy place, and that was only once per year on the Day of Atonement. The author of Hebrews is emphatic about the characteristics that set Jesus apart, which we are going to discuss today. After all, this better high priest, in order to completely fulfill this requirement, would indeed need to be different. Otherwise, that old sacrificial system would still be in place today. In Hebrews 10.1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And so we are going to discuss who Jesus is as the great high priest that changed the system and ushered in a superior, the superior way for the audience of Hebrews and for us today. In our text, the author establishes that Jesus is the sympathetic, sinless high priest. Jesus is the son of God, appointed by God high priest. Jesus is the perfectly submitted high priest. In this first section, we're gonna be in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Passed through the heavens. I'm not sure how you felt or what you thought when you read this, but I just wanted to read right past it and move on. It seems odd and I can't quite make sense of it, but the audience would have fully understood the significance of this statement. And so using commentary and cross-references that we have used so far in our study, I was able to make some sense. As we discussed in previous sessions, every year the high priest would be required to make atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. They would have gathered together as a people, bringing authorized sacrifices and participating in the ceremony that the priest led on behalf of each person who was gathered there. They would have been there as they watched the priest pass through further into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where the Lord's Spirit would be at the mercy seat. When the author states, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, what the author is stating to the audience of this letter and to us is that our great high priest, Jesus, did not pass through a temple made by human hands. He passed through into the heavens where God himself is seated. Jesus, our great high priest, at his ascension, passed from the sight of the apostles and entered into the heavenly sanctuary appearing on our behalf in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. 
The author then moves on in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Sympatheo is the Greek word used in the original text. It's a verb denoting action. It's not simply a feeling or a sentiment. It means to be affected with the same feeling as another. Another term we've heard maybe before is to co-suffer with another. So we read that Jesus felt what we feel, but he doesn't stop at a feeling. Jesus actively invites us toward himself through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is compassion to the point of action. You see, the Son of God chose to experience something he had not known before, humanity. He shared with us, experienced with us, and he fully understands what it's like to be human. The weaknesses the author mentions refer to sickness, physical weakness, or moral weakness related to being in the flesh. Weakness is associated with our propensity towards sin. The author of Hebrews tells us, he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin. Jesus experienced every test that we experience, whether it was the allure of self-concern, the desire for popular acclaim, the ambition for power and self-reliance, or by the temptation in the garden to deny the ordeal of going to the cross, to deny fully finishing what the Lord had called him to accomplish. For the audience and for us today, this means he experienced every temptation possible in its earthly human form and to its fullest measure. He experienced the temptation of sin to the point that you and I have never experienced it because eventually we give in to it. As Philip E. Hughes states, not only has he led the way to victory through temptation, but in doing so, he has also gained the most profound fellow feeling for our weaknesses at the same time demonstrating that our human frailty is the opportunity for the power of God and for the triumph of his grace. And we see this elsewhere in God's word. When Paul was pleading with the Lord to take away the thorn in his flesh, Paul writes that this was the response he heard from the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then goes on to write, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So that the power of Christ may rest upon you. Again, the listeners of Hebrews would have understood this very well. As we discussed in session one, they were in a very precarious situation. They were considering a compromise by giving into the temptation of not holding on to their commitment to Christ. But hold on to that because we will be coming back to this particular point later in the session. It is Jesus's sinlessness 
and the endurance of all he experiences in the flesh that changes everything. He leads the way for us to follow in the freedom of his power to rest upon us being able to endure temptation. The sympathetic, sinless high priest, Jesus, ended the sacrificial system that never quite brought Israel and would have never brought us close enough to God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you or me that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. And our way of escape is our sympathetic, sinless high priest, Jesus. Okay, we are now into our next section, Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All the priests were chosen from the tribe of Levi who were descendants of Aaron. One of the essential characteristics the author points out in verse one is that he is to be chosen from among men. Only a man could be fit to serve as a representative for his fellow man. The office of the high priest was an appointed one. It is compatible with humility and service, not ambition and pride. Jesus didn't appoint himself because he was in full submission to the one he was called to obey. In response to questions from the Jews, John records that Jesus responded by saying, if I glorify myself, then my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me. In verse five of chapter five in Hebrews, we read, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. The author is using references from two of the royal Psalms of David. Psalm 2-7 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And in Psalm 110 verse 4, it states, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These royal Psalms reminded the Israelites of how God made David and his descendants to be kings in order to fulfill what God had promised to Abraham generations before. They would gather together and sing them as a remembrance and as a hope of what was to come. The hope of the promise was tied to the royal line of David and the Israelites knew this full well. 
Psalm 110 in particular is future in its orientation and is one of the most cited Psalms in the New Testament. It was clear in these two royal Psalms that the requirements for a future priest king were more than a mere man could fulfill. These Psalms were prophetic proclamations of Christ coming as the messianic priest king. And in these verses in Hebrews, the author is telling the audience that Jesus is the one who fulfilled these prophetic royal psalms that they would have been so familiar with. Christ's high priestly office was not from himself, but promised and appointed by God the Father because Jesus is the Son of God appointed by God. All right, moving on to our um, last set of verses, Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. While these verses are recalling the entirety of Jesus' life, there is also a specific event of his life on earth that the author is referring to. It is his intense surrender to the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was and is serious about doing the will of the Father. This remained his ultimate priority throughout his earthly life remaining submitted and obedient to the will of the Father. Hebrews 10 verses 9 through 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The previous priests of the Old Covenant offered up gifts and sacrifices, but Jesus offered up loud cries and supplications as he offered up himself in full submission to the Father. Philip E. Hughes writes, Now, in the garden, the moment has come. In his self-identification with mankind, to plumb human depravity and fallenness to its very depths as he prepares in all his innocence and purity to submit himself in the place of sinners to the fierceness of God's wrath against the sins of man. This meant an experience for Jesus incomparable in the horror of its torment from which his being shrank instinctively, but which was inescapable if the purpose of his coming was to be achieved. In other words, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Matthew 26, 36 through 42. Jesus was not facing just a physical death. His agony and desire for the cup to pass from him was because he understood he would be fully experiencing the judgment of the holy God against 
our sin, causing Jesus to experience the second death, the full separation from God. The full separation from God the Father. This is something no human can ever comprehend because in this life, the reality of God is around us in some form, whether we believe it or whether we perceive it or not. This week, your study tool is paraphrasing and using this tool in preparation for our time together, I rephrased these verses. We see that Jesus' full submission to the Father's will in his death on the cross was the culmination of Jesus' accomplishing obedience through what he suffered. This was what the Father had appointed Jesus to do, to walk through suffering in obedience to become the perfect, complete, final sacrifice, which would fulfill the atonement, the removal of our sins. Commentator George Guthrie says, by making it all the way to the end of his passion, Jesus was made complete in the sense of being able to fulfill his role as our high priest. He finished the course. He drank the full measure of experience that was needed in order to come before the throne with a sacrifice with which our sins would be addressed. Moreover, that he learned obedience means that the son said yes to the father's will in an extreme situation that he had not yet encountered. The obedience and perfection that he endured and achieved throughout his humanity makes him our eternal, our source of eternal salvation, we see in verse 9. We end in verse 10, and our final three sessions will do all the work to understand Melchizedek and his relevance to Jesus being the great high priest. So what does all this mean? What was the writer of Hebrews getting at when elaborating so eloquently on these priestly requirements that Jesus embodied and fulfilled? Okay, remember when I said to hold on earlier to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that we would be coming back to them. Well, we have arrived. We are a pet-loving family. And my favorite pet that we have happens to be our four-year-old standard poodle, who seems to get in trouble quite often. And he knows it, too. Whenever he's done something wrong, his immediate response is to go and hide underneath our kitchen table hoping that he's not going to be found out. Of course, we are not animals, but our instinct to hide is the same, isn't it? After sin entered into the hearts of Adam and Eve, because of their doubt in the goodness and character of God, the Bible tells us their first act as a result. In Genesis 3, 8, we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The author of Hebrews is compelling the audience to understand that because Jesus is the complete and greatest high priest, then they now have been granted freedom to fully trust Jesus because of these qualifications. Do you believe that you can fully trust Jesus? 
How does knowing these qualifications change the way you view who Christ is in your life? The author is telling the audience, they have now been given the access to the throne room of God. There is no more repetitive sacrificing and watching from afar as the high priest enters behind the curtain into the most holy place. No, they and you and I can go directly to God himself with boldness and confidence in our time of need. And can I share that there isn't a time in which I am not in need of God. My time of need is all the time. In studying for this session, I was reminded of the many times in my own life where I tried to hide from the Lord. While I won't share the details of those experiences here, what I can say is that the Lord did not allow me to stay hidden. He did with me what he always does, what he always did with Israel and what he will always continue to do. He pursued me. Dane Ortland writes, every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up, but with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required, first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. In Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. No, I cannot hide from the Lord and neither can you. We end here with what the author desired for the audience to understand in their time of need. Jesus is our better, our great high priest. And it is because of him that we can draw near to the throne room of God. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your provision of your word. I thank you for the woman on the other side of this camera, Lord. I thank you that you are the father of good gifts. And Lord, we just praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are working in our lives. And we just pray that this word would be fruit in each woman's heart who experiences it today, Lord. We thank you and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.